Welcome to Trying Days, The Journey, conversations with publisher Chris Milligan. I am Bruce the Taurus. With us is J.B. Fisher, author of Echo of Distant Water, the 1958 disappearance of Portland's Martin family, the case that spurred the largest missing person search in Oregon history and had consequences for the entire nation. J.B. teaches writing at Portland Community College. He holds a doctorate in English Renaissance literature and was a Shakespeare professor before returning to Oregon. JB and Chris, it's good to be with you both. Good to be with you. Thanks. Thank you, JB, for for coming on with us. I I really appreciate it. I mean, it was it's been a very interesting uh, thing doing uh, your book. It's basically a a true crime story, and you know, I I got into this because uh, my daddy told me some stuff I didn't understand, and then uh, there were books out there that were just circling uh, New York with agents, and nobody was publishing them. So. Mm-hmm. I became a publisher, silly enough. Most of those were, you know, very, very suppressed stories. And, you know, I had a hard time getting uh, publicity and everything. And, and you came along and, you know, it's basically a, a true crime uh, story. And I mean, a lot of my other books are, are about true crime, but they're, uh, they aren't for polite company, I guess, you know, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. And, and I think you uh, had talked to uh, Phil, uh, Stanford, who who recommended me, uh, us as a publishing company, and you were up in Portland, and and I was intrigued because you had found these things in McMinnville, where I had uh, lived for a while, and so the story, and, and again, a couple other things about the story really intrigued me. You know, it had a little bit of uh, drug part there in there because you know Portland, for for many years, was uh, very corrupt. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and they used to uh, run a lot of the drugs in there through there because it was easy. It was one of the easiest cities on the West Coast. But let's go ahead and yeah, tell about Echo of Distance Water and this this family that it sells, you know, much better than some of our more um, exciting books, you might say, or, <laughs> yeah. or something like that. But yeah, it, it's quite the story. So tell it. Yeah, so you know, we're talking about December seventh, nineteen fifty-eight, when a Portland family, the Martins, Ken and Barbara, and their three young daughters go off on a Sunday drive and disappear. And uh, first, no one really knows for sure where they went. Uh, family relations think it was probably the Columbia River Gorge, and this huge, at least six agency search fans out all over Southwest Washington and Northwest Oregon over the days leading up to Christmas, 1958. No one knows where they went. Uh, Then clues start turning up. Turns out they had seemed to have stopped for gas in Cascade Locks over in the gorge. And so at that point, um, investigators started to think that they probably went in by accident into the Columbia River. From there, basically after a a number of months with very few clues and very, uh, very, very huge search efforts, uh, a couple of the bodies turn up in the Columbia River uh, in May of 1959, and the, the two youngest daughters um, show up, one in the uh, spillway of the Bonneville Dam and the other in um, the Camas Slough over by Vancouver, Washington. So that pretty much sets the um, focus right there in the gorge. And um, what becomes a really interesting part of the story is that over the, the months and years of investigating, uh, there's one detective who really pursues a very different line than the accident theory that most of the investigation is looking at. Um, and that is this Multnomah County 
detective Walter Graven, who pretty much committed the rest of his life to um, trying to figure this case out. Uh, and he had been pursuing a number of different kinds of clues and found a lot of pushback, a lot of resistance from his higher ups. In fact, was eventually told to just leave the case alone. Um, so there is maybe this is where the suppressed history side kind of overlaps, because that's one of the things that's made this story so unique in a way. I mean, there certainly are lots of missing persons stories and there are lots of um, unsolved missing persons cases, but uh, one involving a whole family that just disappears and just they so many did. questions about what happened to them like and they, resistance. They yeah. didn't find all the family though, did they? No, three of the people, the parents and the oldest daughter are still missing. The car is believed to be in the Columbia River out at the Dalles um, in eastern part of the gorge where there are no Christmas greens. The family, it was eventually determined were going Christmas hunting, Christmas greens hunting, you know, in the eastern part of the gorge where um, it's believed the car went into the river. There are definitely no Christmas trees to be found or Christmas greens out there. So that so this detective finds just a whole slew of clues. And of course, some of them other others had identified as well, but they were just simply not being given the attention that he felt they deserved. I mean, there was an abandoned gun that was found on the highway near Cascade Locks, near where the family had apparently stopped for gas, um, that eventually was linked to the older brother in the family who um, was stationed in the Navy out in New York during the time of the family's disappearance. There was not far from there, a abandoned 1951 Chevy that turned out to have been driven uh, back to Oregon by um, one of two ex-cons who ended up being linked to this story um, and tire tracks that were found over in the Dalles uh, going into the river. And uh, when the detective Graven tested the tracks um, and paint scrapings as well that were found on rocks, they matched the vehicle. So all these things, uh, which could be certainly ruled out as coincidences, as the book really goes on to show, uh, there are just so many of them. And frankly, in this case, it's much harder to substantiate the accident theory than the foul play theory, simply because of the number of elements in, in play. And also, as, as I started looking into it more and more, the question of why it wasn't solved came clearer and clearer that there was more to that than just simply uh, they couldn't find them or they couldn't answer too many unanswered questions. There, there was more to it than that. Corruption, right? Yeah, it really comes down to corruption. It turns out that the um, family, although it's not, it's not for certain what happened, and I don't want to give away too much, but there was definitely an interesting link to um, an individual who was harboring these ex-cons who abandoned this car and most likely this gun um, out in the Columbia Gorge. And this... Um, pretty large, pretty big shot uh, Portland Vice figure who'd been very much a part of the big Portland Vice probe from a couple of years earlier in 1956 uh, that had gone before the Kennedys in Washington, D.C. And in fact, this particular individual had taken the fifth in front of the Kennedys to protect the mayor and to protect the larger civic government of, of Portland against this corruption. And, and as a reward, he was... Um, given free reign out in the town of Dallasport, just across the river where it seems that the family went in. And so these ex-cons connected to the case were, it turns out, being harbored by this particular individual across the river there. Um, Detective Graven went and saw him at one point in the investigation and his superiors weren't happy about that. I think the idea was that they're trying to keep uh, any attention from away from this guy because they had just sort of dealt with the problem of the uh, the Portland vice probe and pretty much thought they'd put it to rest. So the idea that it would come up here was not something that 
you want to uh, draw attention to. Right now, the whole family that was in, in the car at the time got, they, they're dead, right? Yeah. And, yeah. And, but there was an older brother who didn't live there. Mm-hmm. And is there part of the Martin family, but beyond that brother that's alive today? And have they come, yeah. talked to you about this? And- yeah. So it's really interesting because the, the brother, Donald, um, passed away in the early 2000s. And he had um, been in the Navy and then basically was career Navy and went to eventually to Hawaii and started a family of his own and had three uh, daughters and a son. And um, interestingly, I learned in the course of my investigation from neighbors in Portland that he sometimes would come back to Portland and he would all, at that point, he would, he would visit with people in Portland who apparently would, didn't realize that he had married and had a family and was over in Hawaii. And conversely, his own family, I came to connect with them and I learned from one of his daughters that his own family didn't realize that they had had these um, aunts and par- these grandparents who had disappeared in the Columbia Gorge until late in his life. And at that point, one of the daughters got in touch with me over in Hawaii and eventually invited me over and showed me family albums and told me all kinds of things about her experience with her dad, but basically had pretty much no idea about her, her extended family uh, and, and had only learned of this very recently. So that was interesting. And the way he behaved during the, the investigation was interesting. He didn't come back to Portland until um, late in the in the game, so to speak, after his his sisters had been found and kind of waited and had some interesting reasons for that. And that's something I explore in the book, too. I guess just to drop one hint, it may seem almost obvious to point your finger at him, but it turns out there may be more to it than that. So. so- why? I mean, there's some family in Portland and they went missing. Why? Why did it become such a big case? You know, what what was the? What yeah, was the, because I mean, not only you, but, you know, the Oregonian and other people did quite a few stories on it. There was yeah. you know, a TV thing and all of this. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the story that I tell, too, is just sort of the multi-generational nature of the search. And I think there are a couple of answers to that question of why it became such a big deal. I mean, on one level, it was you have this sort of quintessential kind of leave it to beaver 50s family that just goes missing. And you know, the whole family disappears, well, with the exception of the brother, but you know, it's just a sort of um, traditional kind of uh, classic American family disappearing, there's sort of a weird, weirdness around that. And then I think that on the side of um, the searching, I mean, yeah, there's been following from Detective Graven, there have been, I think, three more incarnations of the searching and each time have been very very dedicated efforts where um, the hope was to finally find the car in the river and at the same time to put together these other pieces of these clues and on every case that wasn't possible something happened to thwart it Um, and in one of them that that in the late 60s graven when graven was still alive he actually tried to, to get the case reopened and he had help from a Oregonian journalist, Ann Sullivan, who happened to be friends with, at that point, the governor, Tom McCall, and, and she got McCall to order the Oregon State Police to reopen the case. And so they reopened it in about a decade after the, the family went missing. And they did a pretty thorough investigation, but they just ruled it as an accident, pretty much overlooking all the kinds of clues and coincidences that Graven had put together. So that was that was definitely interesting. And it turned out that some of those Oregon State Police investigators had actually been involved in that Portland Vice probe that I told you about earlier. And so it turned out there's some of the same people, uh, including people who may have been covering for the individual who seemed to have been at the heart of the the Vice side of this. 
so what 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 kind of reaction have you have you gotten from the book and what have you heard from people that that read it what well they seem to enjoy it i think they one of the things i've heard that i think people really like about it is that i've tried to really keep it to just evidence-based to the extent that i lay out pretty much all the clues that i've found through my research you know talking to people and obviously documents i've ended up with detective graven's notebooks and a number of other primary kinds of materials that I've been able to work with. So I've laid all that out and pointed to some plausible places to go with that. But at the same time, left open, the fact is it's an unsolved case even to this day. And I think readers have enjoyed that opportunity to kind of do some of their own detective work with it, you know, from here, since at this point, we're still looking for the car in the river. There's still unanswered questions about exactly what the, the reason was for the family's disappearance, even though I lay out some plausible narrative threads there. So I think it seems people like that aspect of it to have some room to to kind of speculate a little bit that is not, you know, here's a family that disappeared and the book pretty much answers all questions and it's just a done deal. I mean, obviously it's nice to have questions answered. I try to bring that in as much as I can with the evidence that I found, but also keeping that a little bit more open. Do you feel the book did what you wanted it to do? I think so. I mean, it was kind of an interesting process because it took six years, you know, from the time that I found the, the newspapers in my garage. Yeah, tell that I, story. Tell, uh, tell yeah, that so that, story. So it was interesting because, uh, you know, I was, it was, you know, fall and my wife and I were doing some, some cleaning because we'd moved in not too long before and our garage was kind of a mess. And so we started to move boxes around and we noticed above the water heater, there were some, it looked like either paper or fabric or something kind of off white colored stuff hanging off the side of the top of the of the water heater so i lifted some things off and turned out to be some old oregon journal newspapers and they were all from 1958 and they all had stories about the martin family disappearance and this was they were from december of 1958 so right around time that the family disappeared so when i first saw them i thought you know surely this is something i can google and get the answers to as far as what happened to them and so at that point, there were, really wasn't much online. And so everything I found was just about how they were still missing or some of them were still missing. And then I started finding some of the missing persons sites had some interesting kind of cryptic things about how the car had been pushed off a cliff, even though people had thought it was just an accident. And then from there, I thought, okay, there's not much on online. That's not going to help me. So I started to realize I could be proactive. And I contacted the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office. And they said, yeah, you, you can come and take a look at the file. We have it here. And somehow, I don't quite know why they let me not only look at it, they photocopied the whole thing for me. You know, it's like a big telephone book size police file. And then from there, I had been reading the whole thing while I was sitting over at the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office and became more and more fascinated because every time I hit a Walter Graven, Detective Graven police report, it was just wild how different they were from reports by other officers. And there were lots of officers working on this, but every Graven report was full of some, some new thing that was completely just off the charts as far as how how much more in terms of foul play and just strange clues he was looking at. So I thought, I'm going to try to find Graven. And he died in 1988. But it turned out that you know, I was living in McMinnville and right over in, in the next town of Yamhill, his grandson was at that point a police officer. Now he's chief of police there. So um, turned out he was, he was someone I could contact. So I got in touch with him. He was a little reluctant at first, but once I kind of proved my mettle, he talked to me and we started to become good friends on this. And then it turned out that his aunt, Gloria Graven, uh, Walter's daughter, still had a suitcase full of all of her dad's notebooks and papers and materials on this case and others. So she shared that with me and 
told me about her stories of as a teenager being involved in searching the Columbia River with her dad, you know, in 58 and 59, some wild stories about that. So it was just a really interesting series of events. And then from there, it kind of went even further to getting in touch with the Martin family and people who, who currently live in their house over in Northeast Portland. So there were just a lot of, I guess I would call them serendipitous kinds of opportunities here. To so what did the Graven kids think of the book? Um, they, they really, really wanting their, their grandfather's story to be, and their father's story to be told from day one, they've been very much committed to this because they feel like everything that they've passed. He brought down, his work home. It sounds. Yeah, like. exactly. And that they felt, you know, that he had been underappreciated in this and maybe even worse, you know, kind of wronged because he was really seemed to be one of these detectives, one of these law enforcement figures who really at the end of the day, just wanted to get to the truth and get to the the bottom of it. And, you know, he would even say that in his criminal reports. And I've actually written about other cases that he worked on. And it definitely lines up that he he was often thwarted for his efforts. And in every case that I found, he was on a track that was very different from what everyone else was doing. So, yeah, so they've been really happy with the way that um, we've been able to, to tell his story here. Well, good. So, I mean, mm. basically, you know, what, what I picked up from it was, you know, somehow the Martin family bumped into uh, some of the criminal activity uh, that was going on there and they had to be taken care of. And then uh, the um, larger criminal enterprise, which included a lot of the uh, police department helped cover it up. Yeah. Yeah. That's essentially it. And it does seem like there was some question, which is really what Graven's theory always was about some impropriety involving the oldest daughter and friends of the older brother. And that seems to be where, you know, that something that was, that may have sparked the idea of the family being bumped off. That seems to have come from, you know, and we, and we actually, one of the things I've, when I've worked with um, coin TV on this, the lead anchor there has worked on this for a long time. And he had done a really interesting interview with an individual who was friends of the older brother who had come forward when some coverage of this story came up on the news. And it turned out he he sort of inadvertently may have revealed more about some of the, the motives for getting rid of the family than he anticipated. And so it does seem like that was a part of it. And he was actually from a family of some um, renown in Portland. So that coupled with certainly, as you're saying, the larger kind of criminal element and the willingness of police departments to cover it up, especially by keeping the investigation away from the Dalles and the eastern side of the gorge and keeping it at Cascade Locks, where they knew darn well by the end of 1959 that the car was not in the Cascade Locks. And I actually, you know, went to that area and talked with old timers and they laughed at the idea of the car going into the river there by accident. So, you know, it was interesting. That definitely, though, was where law enforcement was keeping it and really not just in Graven's time, but even even to this day, you know, there have been others who have been involved in trying to dive to look for it the car, for example, and they've faced some, not, not quite resistance, but some pushback from law enforcement agencies essentially saying, oh, don't be silly. There's no need to look there. So, so there's this kind of interesting tradition around these parts around, uh, around the story. Right now. So, I mean, you, you uh, uncovered, I think, you know, uh, some new uh, uh, facets about this case and, and, you know, brought together uh, a bigger picture so that you can really look at it that hadn't been out there before. What you brought to the table, has it been, um, have the newspapers or the media in Portland, have, have they picked up on it at all that, that 
what what's been the response from yeah that that's an interesting question chris because you know i have had some coverage in various places you know the oregon arts and some other places that have been been good about running stories mcminnville newspaper but interestingly the oregonian has sort of a long history of treating this this particular case in kind of an odd way and so sure enough when i had contacted people about the book for the Oregonian, they basically eventually said, well, our editors don't want to touch the story. And that that was interesting. Really? Yeah. Which is partly interesting, because in the book, I do come to a little bit about what the newspapers back in the late 50s were doing. And the Oregonian, interestingly, did have a history of being not only politically aligned, but also concerned with basically keeping some stories (laughs) more in focus than others. And certainly the Portland Vice Probe was a a good example of that because that Portland Vice Probe ended up winning a couple of journalists Pulitzer Prizes for their coverage of it. But it turns out that may have actually been a story that they were cleaning up more than than revealing there. Well, they they don't want to sully Mr. Shrunk's uh, name. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. Yeah. So, but it, but it's interesting because that definitely, that was, that may, maybe I should say it wasn't quite surprising about the Oregonian there just because there'd been this, this whole history. I mean, there'd been people involved in the story who, who worked for the Oregonian. I mean, Ann Sullivan was one of the, you know, journalists who had pursued it and then Margie Belay in the late nineties. So it's not as if the Oregonian, you know, was resistant overall, but I think part of it was they, you know, there's certain facets of the story that they weren't so happy with. Well, I mean, I run into the same thing on a, on, a, on a national level. You know, I'll bring these stories. And, you know, I mean, I remember talking to uh, 60 Minutes about uh, Alberelli's book, uh, uh, Terrible, Terrible Mistake. Terrible mistake. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they're, they're saying, well, you know, we, we don't want to say anything bad. You know, we, we don't want to say anything bad. And, you know, it, it gets me, you know, to like, uh, oh, the, the whole Kennedy assassination. You know, we've got these things now where they're saying, you know, well, these lies led to uh, the thing that happened on January 6th. Well, look at the, what the lies about JFK have, have yeah. led to. And we, we yeah. really need as a, as a country to, uh, to, to deal with this in, in an honest way, it's really true. In, yeah. in an honest way. And, and you know, I mean, it, it's, it, it's almost like a, uh, you know, a, a microcosm. Here you've got, you know, a, a community that because of its leaders was open to corruption. And then because mm-hmm. of the corruption, um, they have to keep it in the shadows. And, you know, and, and you have a, a situation like that. So I, I really appreciate you bringing the, the book uh, to me because I found it very interesting. And, and you know, I, I enjoy, uh, I guess, not getting uh, oh, shot so much about some of the suppressed stuff. And, you yeah. know, it, it's been very interesting. Any, any uh, yeah. Bruce, do you have any uh, questions for uh, JB? Yes, I do. Your bio says you continue to write about true crime. Did the uh, Martin story launch you on that? Yeah, it was interesting because what, what happened was when I found those newspapers and then kind of got into the whole search for Graven, uh, that it actually yielded another book before I finished this one that was about that same time period in the 1950s and some of the other cases that Graven was working on. I collaborated with another writer, J.D. Chandler, on a book called Portland on the take. And that that was partly out of that material. And then frankly, there's more from what Graven did, especially around that vice probe, because it turns out that the, you know, the Oregonian coverage of the vice probe was one version. Uh, the Oregon Journal 
was looking at it that was the rival paper during that time which got basically swallowed up by the Oregonian and disappeared by the early 1980s but the Oregon Journal was doing its own investigation into this vice probe and was investigating both the Portland Police Bureau and the Oregonian itself a lot and they were doing that with the Oregon State Police at least initially and I have a huge a huge file of Oregon State Police reports about this vice probe um, and some of it overlaps with cases that Graven was working on during that time as well. So I guess the short answer is I'm in the midst of another project, which involves really trying to retell that story of the vice probe and what, what Phil Stanford did in Portland Confidential, kind of from a different angle, which is to say, it's not necessarily that one is incorrect, but rather that one is leaving out sort of some important aspects of the story that haven't been told up till now. And part of that is because of politics and because of the the way that these rival papers were were operating. I lived in Portland from about oh, 67 to 77. And uh -huh. a friend of mine, cousin, was a um, worked for Interpol. And oh, wow. he came through town one day and, and the guy and he says, well, what, what's your job? What are you doing? And he says, well, part of his job was to to go down the west coast of the United States and, and discover the the corruption and 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 <laughs> his comment was that portland was the cheapest and and kind of out of the, the spotlight in a lot of ways i mean even now sometimes when i tell people i write about corruption in portland and they say what what do you mean why portland why not talk about new york or chicago and my answer is usually some version of well th th this was where no one was looking you know they just assumed it was new york and chicago and figured they could it could uh, keep people paying attention to those places. And Portland actually had a lot of connections to a lot of a lot of those big places and basically a back door in a lot of ways. So you got any uh, last words or anything you want to talk yeah, about? Well, yeah, I wanted to mention too, in terms of the um, how I found Trine Day, that I should also say that, you know, Phil Stanford gave me his books and then I started reading Terrible Mistake and thought, oh, you know, I have some questions for Hank Alberelli. And so I got in touch with him and, he put me in touch with you so i guess i should i should credit him here too well, posthumously for uh, uh, yes yeah. yes bless bless his soul yeah, uh, Hank, yeah. and he's still he's got a uh, another book coming out it's uh i can't think of the name of it right now it'll be out in uh, march or april something okay. like that okay and it's it's about the kennedy assassination and uh oh, yeah. talks a bit about the the fascists and whatnot mm. well jb i really want to thank you for for coming on you know and yeah, I really, like I say, I appreciate your book. It, it sells well, which is, uh, is always a good thing for a book, <laughs> you know. Like I, I tell the, my authors and, and different people, I says, my, my marketing philosophy is basically, well, I try and get the book in the hands of people that will read it. And mm -hmm. if they like it, they'll tell their friends. And I can say that, that people like your book because they seem to be telling their friends. Yeah, that seems to be. Yeah, well, thanks. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk to me about it. And, well, yeah. onwards. And thank okay. you very, very much. Thanks. Yeah, okay. thanks.